That first um, passage I read from Thessalonians is very interesting. Um, I think really what the Lord is saying to the Apostle Paul is wake up. The fact of the matter is that although we have the book, we have his prophetic word, we are in fact very much of the church asleep. We're coasting along, we're complacent, we have no idea that the Lord is not in the midst, but he is outside knocking on the door and saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with him and will sup. Can you believe that the Lord Jesus could say of an assembly like this, I'm outside, I'm not inside, I am actually knocking on the door. If any man, not if all of you, but if any single person can hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. The Apostle spoke of being asleep. He said, let's not be drunk, but let us be sober. Let us not sleep as do the rest, or we shall be swept away like an avalanche a flood of enormous proportions, just as the world is swept away. Now that, I think, is a very serious word, especially for you young people. Those of you who have had a Christian background, you know it all. It's all old hat to you. You know how to say the right words, use the right phraseology, because you've heard your parents for years. But you may not be awake. And you may not realize that what we have said for years will happen in the end, will actually happen, maybe, in our day. We may be waiting for a rapture, but the fact still is that we have quite a bit of, to go through before that rapture actually comes. Because the Apostle Paul says in this same letter that we shall not be caught up to be with the Lord until the man of sin is revealed. That means somehow or other we go into the first period of of deep spiritual darkness. Now if you, all of you, you older ones I don't need to tell you, but you younger ones, If you don't wake up now and start to allow the Holy Spirit to prepare you, you will be taken by surprise. Recently there was a storm where I was staying in Bowling Green in Virginia, a severe storm that knocked out the power in the whole area for quite a few hours. 
And when we woke up the next day, I noticed a whole number of huge trees were destroyed. Every one of the trees that was destroyed was rotten. Outwardly, it looked marvelous. It even had leaves. Nothing had died. But you could tell when the thing was broken and down. It had rotted from within. And I thought to myself, what a warning that is to all of us. We may look as if we've got green leaves. We may look good. We can sing the hymns. We can even at times take part in prayer. But when the storm comes, it discovers the rot. I remember the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He used to stay for his holidays in Devon, in the west of Britain, in a little fishing town. He loved it very much. He used to go for a walk every evening as the sun set. It was where the same fishing town that the hymn Abide With Me, Fast Falls the Even uh, uh, Sun, um, was written. And he said on this occasion he used to look at all the boats. They were so beautiful, they looked very nice, and so on the fishing boats and many other boats as well in the harbour. But then came a storm. And when the next day after the storm had calmed down, he went. At least half of the boats had disappeared. And he asked one of the fishermen nearby, how come? So many of the boats have sunk. And the old fisherman said, You see, the boats that sank had barnacles. You couldn't see it. It was under the waterline. And when the storm came, they sank. Now that's the kind of warning that only the Lord can give to us. I mean, some of you younger ones are too young to have barnacles growing on you. But I mean, you older ones can certainly have barnacles. You know, they're those funny little crusty looking things that grow under the water on the boat and actually make it heavy so that when the storm comes, the boat sinks. It's a warning. It is very interesting the statement in Hebrew in Psalm 11 and verse 3. In my version, the King James Version, and my version is the American Standard Version of 1901, which I consider to be one of the most accurate of all these multitudinous modern versions we now have. Um, This old version of 1901 I think is a pretty good one. But it reads like this, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? But my version has an uh, an alternative marginal reading. If the foundations be destroyed, what have the righteous wrought? The Hebrew is very interesting. It can be translated in two ways. For instance, the Young's literal translation puts it like this. If the foundations be destroyed, 
what have the righteous done? That's what my margin says. What have the righteous wrought? In other words, one way of rendering the Hebrew is it's something to do with the future. What shall the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? But the other way is if the foundations are destroyed, the righteous are more than partly to blame. That is exactly where we are as the people of God in this 2013. Here in the so-called Christian lands of the West. We are the witnesses of a colossal collapse of Christian principle and faith and understanding. We are the witnesses of a church which is silent. Hardly a leader in the Christian church has spoken up about these things. Same-sex marriage. Gay rights, abortion at a very late date when the child is fully formed. Unbelievably, it's not welcome to evangelicals, it is only the Catholic Church that, believe it or believe it not, has spoken up. John the Twenty-Third was the first, Pope John. Paul was the second. Pope Benedict the sixteenth was the third. They all spoke up against what was what is happening in so called Christian society. When John Paul asked the European Commission in the preamble to their Um, treaties on uh, European and Anglo-Saxon civilization where they had not mentioned either the gospel or the Bible that they should at least say that a source of that civilization was the preaching of the gospel and the Bible. And they replied to Pope John Paul It is not the preaching of the gospel nor the Bible that is the source of European and Anglo-Saxon civilization. It is Hellenism, which means humanism. Pope Benedict then went again himself and asked them, begged them, at least put in the preamble that the gospel and the Bible were a source of Christian, um, uh, of of, um, uh, European and Anglo-Saxon civilization. And this time they said it it is not, it has nothing whatsoever to do with it. Hellenism is the source of our civilization.
Thank God for Asia, for Africa, South America, where so much is happening, and where an emerging church is actually influencing those nations. It's quite extraordinary. Whereas in the so-called Christian lands, there is an apostate church, very largely. And where there are where there is a remnant of the faithful, but not activated, just drifting along. I think that, if you will allow me to say it, the church has failed. And it has failed miserably. There is no excuse whatsoever for the church of God in this present situation. We have failed. We have failed in prayer. We have failed in intercession. And we have failed in speaking up. And now we are reaping the consequences. And we shall see it in full measure in the days that lie ahead. I don't, I, it's very miserable for me to say this this evening, but there's no way out of it. I shall on one of these evenings talk about intercession and I'll say a bit more about it, but let me say this straight away. I shall never forgotten Charles Finney. When it was recorded in one of his books on awakening and revival. He said, you can always have an awakening if there are Christians prepared to pay the price. One of the most extraordinary messages he ever gave was on plowing up the fallow ground, one of the most uncomfortable things to read as a Christian. It's possible to read. But he said, where there are people prepared day and night to take hold of the Lord, not to be, to be in any way fobbed off, but to keep at the matter until it happens. Where there is such sacrificial intercession and prayer, not just mouthing a few words in a prayer meeting, but really people who are consumed with a burden, conceived by the Holy Spirit, until it is fulfilled, then it happens. And I think one day when we're in the glory, uh, and <clears throat> we hear the full story of every single awakening and revival in the history of the church, 
from the first century to today. We shall hear how it all began with some people prepared to pay the price. Our Christianity is far too comfortable. We don't want to be disturbed. We want to have the kind of thing where we have very fine places of worship, wall-to-wall carpeting, ministers of education, ministers of music, ministers for the young, ministers for the old. We want to have a pastor who preaches a message that we can talk over our Sunday meal about, uh, wasn't that interesting, what pastor so-and-so said this morning? We don't want anything that would turn us upside down revolutionize us, challenge us to do something. No, 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 we don't want anything like that. Be disturbed. We don't go to church to be disturbed. We go to be what Paul calls asleep. (laughs) Only the Lord can speak to us and save us from this terrible, artificial kind of Christianity that we've got into. And the problem is that the United States, which has been a bastion and a bulwark for gospel truth, for biblical truth and principle has unfortunately exported a kind of church which is not the real church. And the result is that the core, which is here and in Britain and in the European countries, Scandinavian countries, It's rotting. Now, I don't know if you're still with me or whether you're fed up with me. But if you look at the Ephesian letter, you have the whole thing put in simple words. Now, the Apostle Paul has already revealed to us in this letter the most extraordinary um, explanation of God's eternal purpose. The most remarkable in the whole 66 books of the Bible. So amazing is what he says that if you take chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, these phrases fall out of the apostle like a great fountain How do you, I mean, you could spend a day on one phrase just thinking about what does it mean? What is he saying? It is incredible. He calls it this revelation of the eternal purpose of God in Jesus. And then he ends 
And he ends in the most extraordinary manner. He concludes the letter, not as we would expect. Instead of saying, finally, let's have conferences where we shall have the deepening of Christian life. Let's have conferences for the formation of spiritual character. We would all agree with it. This is essential. Or he could have said, finally, let's have meetings where the baptism of the Spirit and the power and anointing of the Spirit may be experienced by all. We would have agreed with him. Marvellous. He doesn't end that way at all. He doesn't say, be sure that you study the Bible. We would have agreed with that. He doesn't end with, finally, let's have prayer meetings. Well, let's be honest. Our prayer meetings are often the most boring meeting of the routine of the church. No wonder half the people don't go there. And I can fully understand why young people don't go. I always remember Goldham Ear saying years ago, when we have friends like we have, this is Israel, we don't need enemies. And I feel the Lord sometimes says, well, I've got friends like that I have. We don't need Satan. Leave it to them. They will destroy any prayer meeting. There'll be no cohesion, no harmony, no following the anointing, no standing upon the word, upon God's revealed will, no enforcing of the will of God upon this earth, No bringing of the kingdom of God, the throne of God, to bear upon our circumstances or whatever we're facing. He ends this way. Finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles or strategies or stratagems of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all to stand, stand therefore. Sadly, Ephesus never listened to him. We know from Revelation the Lord said, you've lost your first love. Unless you come back and repent, I will remove the lampstand from its place. That is the testimony of Jesus. I will remove it from you. Which is exactly what happened. If I may put it another way, you could be, especially you younger ones, you could be forgiven for thinking that the Apostle Paul is suffering from dementia. It's not this great array of 
evil spiritual spiritual beings that are arrayed against the work of the Lord, arrayed against the Lord's work and purpose. It's um, it's the fact that he talks about wrestling with um, with principalities, powers, world rulers of this present darkness hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenly places. And then he talks all the time about putting the whole armour of God on. Well, I have never seen a wrestling match yet where everybody's been in armour. That would be the funniest thing I've ever seen. Of course, some people then immediately say, even Darby, who was so correct in the way, especially in his translation of the scriptures, not a very readable translation, but a very accurate translation. He says, for we struggle not against. Because, you see, you could be, you could struggle in armor. And, I mean, let me put it another way. He says, stand, withstand, stand, and having done all stand. How do you wrestle and stand? Have you ever seen a wrestling match? It's a very vulgar sport. <laughs> Crude, sweaty, not perspiration, it's real sweat. I mean, you've got sort of so many 200 pounds sitting on 200 pounds or throwing 200 pounds out of the ring. I remember years ago being in the home of a couple, a Polish couple, who found the Lord wonderfully. And how did she meet her husband? He was thrown out of the ring and he landed in her lap. <laughs> she didn't even know him. It led to their marriage and a very happy family. But really, when you think about it, I mean, how do you stand and wrestle? No wonder the new, later versions say struggle, because you can stand and struggle. But the word pali in Greek is used in classical Greek often of, of, of wrestling, athletes wrestling in either Hellenic or Roman wrestling. It's also used of soldiers in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So, I mean, it, here we, we come back to something. I personally think that it is the correct thing is wrestling. But, of course, we have a problem. You put armor on. I mean, let, let, let me... Be quite honest, I'm just not just trying to be funny. I mean, you don't cook a meal with, with armor on. You don't garden with armor on. Normally, you don't take the dog for a walk with armor on. You don't go to bed with armor on. I mean, it'd be strange if you had a shower and you had armor on. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, armor means war. It's all to do with combat. 
So you see, you have a most amazing thing here. No wonder one could almost imagine that Paul's suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia because he, he's talking about having armor on. He keeps on about it to put on the whole armor of God. And then again he says, about all this wrestling and so on, put on the whole armor of God, withstand in the evil day. What's he talking about? He's got his, uh, his pictures all mixed up. Maybe he's just getting old, like me. But I, I don't think so at all. I think he was absolutely right. You wrestle with the powers of darkness, this whole great array of huge spiritual beings. We wrestle with them only when we have the armor on. What is the armor? Simply, the armor is the Lord Jesus. It's as simple as that. I have said it in this latest book that we've done. Um, you know, I used to remember a person years ago who was a real neurotic. I mean, there are a number of them in Christian circles. And he really was a real neurotic. And he used to stand in front of the mirror every day and put the helmet on. <laughs> then he put the breastplate on. Then he girded his loins with truth. Then he put the preparation of the gospel on his feet. Then he took the, the shield. And then he would spend the rest of the day thinking, oh, I've forgotten something. I'm sure I've forgotten something. There's no need for that. All you need to do is to put on the Lord Jesus. Now, let me put it another way. Do you remember what the Lord said in John 15? Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, neither can ye. For apart from me, ye can do nothing. When you were saved, God repositioned. He took you out from under the domain and power of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his dear son. He positioned you in Christ. Remain where God placed you. If you stay where God placed you, you are absolutely safe and furthermore you will overcome. Overcoming is not something to do with very elite and superior people. It is a matter of position. If you're in Christ and you abide in Christ and remain in Christ, you can do no other than overcome. It's so simple. Why does the Apostle Paul say stand, stand, withstand, stand, and having done all stand? It's the strangest way to win a wrestling match. You don't go backwards, you don't go forwards, you don't go to the sideways, left or right, you don't go up, you don't go down, you stand. What does he mean? He means you will stay where God the Father has placed you by the Holy Spirit. 
the day you were born of God, the day you were saved by the grace of God, you may not have even realized it at the time, you were repositioned. Stay where the Father has placed you by the Holy Spirit. Does this mean anything to you? We are now going to face an avalanche of evil. Mark my words. Not just a flood, an avalanche of evil. You cannot change the whole of human society. Society as we know it has been built on one man and one woman coming together. And from them, a family being produced. If once you change that into same-sex trouble, couples, or or further than that, they are allowed to adopt or have surrogate children born. The whole of society will dramatically within a generation change. You will have a whole number of children born of same-sex parents or adopted by same-sex You think the Lord is just going to stand back and smile? This word translated from the Greek in English by the word principalities is very interesting. (coughs) The Greek word is archi. And from this word archi we get Archangel, Archdeacon, Archbishop, Architect, Architrange, Archenemy, Archetype, and we could go on and on and on. It's one of the words from Greek that has been brought into English. What does it mean, this word here? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities. These principalities are fallen angels. Not any angel, but supremum. The word in Greek, he just means chief, first, forerunner, beginning. What it simply means is that um, the, I bet like the word supremo. In other words, they are in charge of Satan's affairs. In charge of Satan's policies. They are working for the victory of Satan. It may seem very hard for some of us to believe that that is possible. We would think that Satan by now would have realized he's been defeated everything he's ever done by God. But the fact of the matter is pride is pride. He still believes he can win. The powers, exousia in Greek, means delegated power, competence. You understand? In other words... They are the lower uh, um, order, 
And they carry out the policies and plans of the Supremos. Then we have, of course, world rulers of this darkness, which means every kind of darkness, from evolutionary theory, Darwinism, as such, uh, social darkness, philosophical darkness, religious darkness. These are the beings that are particularly um, specialized in every form of darkness. And then we have, I think the best way to understand the last thing is by hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenlies. It says wickednesses in Greek, but I mean, it means wicked spirits. These are Satan's civil service. They're all the smaller minions, but they're pretty awful. They're in charge of seeing that all of Satan's work is done. They are the kind of spirits that watch your family and find out all the weaknesses that are there and report back the others in how to trip up that family or how to trip up that business that's yours or how to trip up your relationship with husband or wife or how to, to cause division and faction in the church. They watch, record, they're real civil servants but um, of course spiritual wicked. This is what we face. We know very well from the word of God that there's going to come a time when the man of sin is revealed. Then it will be an evil day par excellence. How near we are to that, we don't know. Maybe we're nearer than we think. If I may put it yet another way, there are fallen angelic beings that control history. Maybe you don't believe that, but I personally believe that all of history is the expression of invisible spiritual beings. Fallen and unfallen. When it was the unfallen, it was those great principalities, those princes, who watched over great awakenings, prayed for by saints. And they watched over it and launched the whole thing and then watched over the course of it until sometimes a whole nation was changed. Then, because there were so many believers in the, the, that's what happened with the Quakers, what's happened with the Puritans and the Covenanters, it's what happened with the Anabaptists, it's what happened with the first great evangelical awakening with the Wesleys and with Whitfield. Millions found the Lord. Even that silly old king who lost these colonies 
um, through his stupidity. Um, uh, even he had to say, when, when Wesley died, he had to order decree three days of mourning and that Wesley should be buried in Westminster Abbey. When those great movements took place, because so many people believed in their Bible and in the truth of the gospel, biblical principles were set at the heart of those nations. They became the foundation of those nations. Whether it was to do with family, with marriage, whether it was to do with service, all these things that we take for granted, they all came out of awakenings. Take child reform. They used to send little boys this high up chimneys till in the end their hands were destroyed by what the soot that they used to brush out until the Christians with a, a single voice called on Parliament to stop such child labour. Or think of nursing. It began with the Quakers and Florence Nightingale and others. Or think of the great prison reforms. It began with Elizabeth Fry, another Quaker. It is amazing. All these things were placed at the heart of nations. Do I have to tell you about American history? I don't need to even mention it. Surely you know these successive awakenings that came through people like Jonathan Edwards and others swept over what were then called the colonies and changed the face of the people. And biblical principles were placed at the heart. Take the Netherlands. It happened with Holland and the Netherlands. Take Germany before Nazism. It happened with Germany, with the great Reformation and Martin Luther. Take the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark. It happened with them. Everywhere you look, you see the same incredible picture. Now, if you've followed me so far, I hope I'm not boring you stiff. But if you followed me so far, now we can go one step further. I believe that the good principalities, the unfallen angelic principalities, have been dislodged by the evil ones. Nothing else could cause this incredible avalanche of paganism. You see, history is the evidence of these spiritual beings. Oh, you say, I think he's going a bit queer. Um, but just wait before you, you, you follow that through. 
Do you remember in Daniel the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece? Do you remember that Gabriel, an archangel, was sent by God expressly, immediately to Daniel with a message? God has heard your prayer the moment you started and is going to answer. But on the way he got into a scrap. Is this a fairy tale? A legend? Got into a fight. A fight? With the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. What was the fight over? With the prince of Israel. Michael. And Gabriel said, I could not leave Michael. I had to help him. And this must all sound like a fairy tale to some people. But the fact of the matter is that it's the truth. I believe that those great supremos, as I call them, archangels, that have been watching over the British Empire originally in its growth, the fact that it became the biggest single factor in the gospel being preached in the whole world. I think of the United States and that archangel that has watched over the growth of your constitution and of everything that belongs to American life. Those good unfallen angels have been dislodged, and one of the reasons is that the church never helped them. Let me put it another way. God is very interested in training us in intercession. I shall talk about this another evening. But it, it, he's training us in how to be in touch with the throne and how to enforce the will of God as it is done in heaven, so on earth. Not some distant future when the kingdom of God will come, may it come, or some distant future when the will of God will be done as it is in heaven, so on earth. But now! That's where we failed. The church is meant to be light in darkness. It is now darkness in darkness. Not completely, but very largely. When we have a Spokesman for the Evangelical Alliance in Britain planning a marriage service for same-sex couples in evangelical churches. We know we've come to the end. When we have a bishop saying that the resurrection of Jesus is a cheap conjuring trick with bones, we know we've come to an end. <laughs> when we've got another bishop saying that Jesus had a sexual um, 
liaison with Mary Magdalene. Where does he get it? It's unbelievable. The church is supposed to be light in darkness. The church is supposed to be salt in corruption, halting the corruption. The church is is meant to be a city set on a hill that everybody can see. The church is meant supremely to hold the testimony of Jesus. That means Jesus lives again through his body. When the church is what it should be. But is a thousand, thousand miles away from being what it should be. I think that's probably enough for one evening. But let me take you one step further. You and I need to respond. Because we're so used to just drifting along, being complacent, having everything nice, pleasant. We're not ready to be soulfish. We're not ready for the discipline. We're not ready for the togetherness. We're not ready for orders to be issued and obeyed. So we have a problem. What are we to do? If the foundations be destroyed, what shall we do? The only thing we can do is to take refuge in the Lord. The only thing we can do is be faithful to what he has given to us. Not to deny him, but to be faithful whatever it costs to him. And only he can help us. The testimony of Jesus is such an amazing thing. Jesus was the word of God. That is the heart and mind of God articulated, verbalized. Jesus was the alphabet of God, the A and Z and all the other letters. That means that if the world is to see God, it needs us to hold the testimony. If the world is to hear him, it needs us to be the body through which he speaks. Isn't it interesting in the book of Acts where the very first verse Luke says I've written this treatise, O Theophilus after the first one which was the gospel of Luke that you might see I'm putting it in my own words. How Jesus has continued to teach 
and to act as he did when he was actually here on the earth. That is the church. It's a kind of church where a prostitute feels at home. Where a sinner lost in evil and sin has a witness within their spirit I've come home. God is here. It says of a certain person, they will fall down on their face and say, God is here. That's because every human being has this homing instinct in them. And when the church is what it ought to be, it's that homeliness. I know that's uh, in American English means something else. Um, I think you say homey. But it, what it means is that it, it, it's every person who comes into the church when it gathers, they touch something. Something in them, the Holy Spirit witnesses in their spirit even. Though they're unsaved, you've come home. That was Jesus. The publicans and sinners, they sat with him, they laughed with him. They ate with him. There was none of this kind. I, I was in a company where the many of the folks, especially the ladies, had, didn't even know what tobacco smoke smelled like. They were so separated from the world that in the course of it, they totally separated from human beings. <coughs> had no idea. The testimony of Jesus is something so amazing. When that woman came in, she broke that spike on our vows over his feet and over his head. And another one came in and wiped his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee who saw it was horrified. If he was a truly holy man, he would realize what kind of woman this is. But that's the church. It doesn't mean we condone sin. It means that sinners have finally found their home. Their home is in Jesus. It's as simple as that. And that's how far we've gone in our understanding of the church. That it's just a routine. It's a ritual it's a cold, hard place. May the Lord touch our hearts and help us. Here we are facing a collapse in the United States. I mean, Obama got in by a big vote because the judgment of the earth the Lord on the United States is continuing. And the only answer to this is if there were people prepared to be sacrificial, totally sacrificial, and pray until God did something. That will take your body spirit, soul, and body. It will take everything you are. 
And until there were Christians ready to meet together and continuously seek the Lord until it happened. I will finish. I remember years ago when the Hebrides revival hit northwest Scotland. It began with two old sisters. They were so old, one of them was nearly blind and the other was crippled with arthritis. They couldn't even go to church in the Church of Scotland nearby. So they used to meet in their home with others and worship the Lord together. And the Lord one day spoke to them a promise. He said, I will pour water on the dry ground. Spoke about their sons and daughters coming into being. And they took hold of that thing day after day after day after day for some years until finally it happened. It happened on a Sunday evening in a church of Scotland with a good Dear brother Duncan Campbell, I knew him reasonably well, and he went to preach there. He flew from Glasgow there. It was very ordinary, the Sunday evening service. They were weak reeds, so they were very legalistic. No hymn until after sundown. They only sang songs. But that evening he preached in a strange stillness came over the whole congregation. Finally he sat down and not a soul did anything. Neither did the elders nor anybody else. And then a young man, a missionary from the Yemen, stood up and prayed his heart out that God would fall on And the next minute, these very legalistic Scots were all over the floor, flat on their backs or their faces, crying out to God. It was the beginning of the Hebrides revival. So incredible was it that fishermen were saved out on their trawlers. They fell on their faces while bringing in the nets and called on God for mercy. And they came back, not only with the fish, but saved. Shepherds up in the highlands with their sheep fell on their faces in the wet grass, called on God to save them and forgive them their sin. On one occasion, a whole group leaving a meeting was suddenly met by this amazing music heard by over a hundred people like a symphony above them and fell on their faces before God. It was the Hebrides revival. Finney said, you can always have an awakening if you're prepared sacrifice yourself. May God